out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall and the C86 Show. Once again, we have a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Neil Housen, one-time member of the Age of Chance, all the way from Leeds. So I've got that interview that I'm just going to just play in one take. It's that good. Um, But to get the show on the road, I think we should play your favourite, mine, and, well, frankly, if you don't like it, you're probably not into the music. This is going to be Don't Get Mad, Get Even. Yeah. 
Indeed, that is the age of chance with the track title, Don't Get Mad, Get Even. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Neil Harrison from the band. So I've got that interview. But before that, I think we should do some admin. Or shouldn't we? I don't know. Oh, no, let's do it. OK, then. If you want to contact me, you can on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there. It will be deli- delightful. As long as you keep it nice and friendly, otherwise don't bother. And also, I've archived all these shows um, that I've been doing for nearly three years plus. So you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. They're all there and much, much more. And you can go to the, I think, a sort of website, which is www.c86show.org. I suddenly had to have a rethink on that. But hopefully that's the right one. You'll find it somewhere. Anyway, this is the interview. It is pretty epic, actually. So get yourself a hot chocolate, sit down, relax, and just tune in to some quality chat. This is Neil, and this is my first part of the interview. And like I said, probably I'm just going to play it in one take because it's that good. Um, When I began by asking about the early days and how it all began, and this was it. Oh, and before I just um, hit hit record or hit play, um, they were, Age of Chance, were on the original NME cassette. C86, so they are definitely one of the chosen ones. This is it, though. Neil, take it away. It's quite a long story. I I met Stephen E. Um, through uh, an advert in the NME, and um, it, it, it was really vague. It could have been for um, a, a painter or a sculptor or a mechanic. It, I think it just said something like ideas, energy, enthusiasm. And um, and because it was a Leeds number, I thought oh, I'll give it a call, and went round to see him, and um, discovered we had quite a lot in common in terms of music and things. He was a bit younger than me; he was sixteen at the time. I think I was probably about eighteen or nineteen, and um, and we just talked about having a band. And at that point, neither of us could play anything, um, so we just spent you know a, a year or two hanging out and 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 trying to find. Um, musicians uh and it, it i must say it took quite a while uh because she, we met some some people who weren't anything i didn't have anything coming with us um and actually from the moment that we met to the moment that we had enough people in a band it was probably about three or four years which just takes to shows you how long the gestation period and in that time I, I moved to london for a while uh, and then i came back and steve and i set up a nightclub uh called the up zone and and that probably had much as much of an effect on the, on the direction of what the band would be as anything else, uh, because we were really into mixing a lot of different genres together, mainly all, all, all kinds of music that we liked. But we'd go from things like um, the Honeycombs, uh, have I the right to the Fire Engines, uh, to Fever, um, Cabaret Voltaire, pretty extreme stuff but really commercial stuff, which is, is what we always liked. Yeah. So uh, through that, we met more people and, and met Jeff. And um, for a while, we, we actually rehearsed with a drum machine. Yeah. We didn't have a drummer. Uh, we knew we didn't want a drum machine because there's virtually every band in Leeds had one. And Jeff said, oh, my, my, uh, my friend might be interested in, in coming along as a drummer. And... Um, she, her aesthetic really was kind of Dusty Springfield, Northern Soul. And we didn't want anything elaborate like Carl Palmer on drums or, you know, somebody with a massive kit. So we actually went out and bought a snare for a tenor 
and a tambourine, and that was how we started. And then we we upgraded to having a tom, a floor tom, and that was pretty much the drum kit. Right. Uh, and it suited us down to the ground because, like I said, we didn't want anything other than that kind of northern tamla kind of vibe on the the kind of music that we'd we were trying to put together based mm-hmm. on those songs that I told you before. So um, that that was one of the reasons why we got together to try it. We, we, had, we kind of had an idea on the, the kind of music we wanted to make. Uh, it was difficult to articulate, but we'd probably all lay down about five five singles or, or LP tracks and say, this is what I like, this is what I want to bring to the party. And then we'd just try and mix it all in. Yeah. And uh, it was very, very primitive. Uh, Jeff was by far and away the most technical player. Um, and Steve and I and, and Jan were all, I guess, influenced by punk. Yes. In that, you know, there was no, there's no rules. If you had an idea, it was up to you to try and make it real. And 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 that was the driving force of the band, really, to to, to be creative and try and put something together that hadn't been done before, in a way that was exciting and energising, and hopefully people had, had, had relate to it. Yeah, and 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 that that was really the the the, the kind of manifesto if we had one, um, to 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 get that creativity out there. Yeah, because <clears throat> obviously, um, as I was thinking that because Leeds had bands like Girls at Our Best, and they had the Mekons, Jumbawamba, and obviously the goth mm. bands like Sisters of Mercy. So you your sound was completely different to anything like that, wasn't it? It, it was, yeah. Um, I mean, we we knew all those bands. Uh, you know, we hung out with them, played football with them, or baseball, or whatever. Um, but we didn't want to be exactly like them. Um, Gang of Four were, were a kind of formative, formative influence, I guess. Uh, we knew the sisters pretty well, um, and, and, and the, the Mekons, etc. Three bands like Three Johns who were really supportive of us uh, starting out. But I think one of the, the main differences between us and, and a lot of bands, not necessarily these, but a lot of bands that came out at our time, was that we really liked dancing. We used to go to clubs. Um, you know, I was in a disco, um, and 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 that kind of aesthetic and those those kind of ideas weren't really what was expected of a guitar band in the in the kind of the early mid eighties. It was more, you know. I guess Stooges, Velvets kind of vibe, yeah. which we liked, but we we didn't really want to be them. But the energy that you got from dancing and that kind of exhilaration uh, of dancing to your favourite record was something that we wanted to bring to our tunes and our music. So that that was that was a, a, con- a key consideration for us. Yeah, and when did you? Because that was interesting. Because in the autumn, I was, I, I had an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and obviously they created sort of quite a unique sound for the for the time. But it did take them a while to get something that made it sound worth continuing with. Because I think for a while it just didn't work at all, and then then it's like, mm. oh, actually, we've we've slowly got it, you know, especially because Lemmy's bass playing was so unique. So, so with with obviously the Age of Chance, that was slightly similar, wasn't it? Because you weren't sort of copying another guitar-based band, and the only other band that was doing something quite interesting, and there probably were more, but was someone like, there was a band called Finney Tribe, I think, from Scotland? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I recall them, yeah. I <laughs> think... Um, from 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 those early eighty bands, eighties uh, bands, um, the one that stood out for me were the Associates, um, and Steve and I were, were, were big fans, particularly of the way they experimented with sound. Um, they did a Peel session, 
um, which was which we we really really liked, um, and it was kind of almost like dub versions of of the tunes that they did, um, and things like Message of Bleak Speech and Kitchen Person were, were were you know had a big effect on us. I think in terms of finding our own sound, um, it was we were sort of feeling our way. Motor City was something that we we kind of we knew what we wanted to sound like and. We, didn't, we had no experience in the studio, so it was pretty rickety sounding. But that kind of driving, uh, four on the floor, stomping, northern vibe was what we were after. And I think if you listen to that and then Bible of the Beats, which is the second single that we did, you, there's a definite progression in terms of like, the textures that we used and the, the width of the sound. You know, it was we, we, we tried to be a bit more... Uh, not exactly cinematic, but a bit more operatic, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I'd, I'd been listening to uh, Glenn Branca. Um, I don't know if you've heard of any of this stuff. He's a New York artist who used to put um, symphonies together with about 25 guitars uh, and, and, and used to build textures and, and, and sounds and lots of dynamics, quite loud stuff. Yeah. And that, that was an influence on us as well. So from... Uh, after doing um, Battle of the Beats, which kind of had as much as we could rolled into two and a half minutes, the, the, the next song that we really focused on was for the NME, the C86 song. This is it, uh, from now C86 on. Album. From now on, this will yeah, be good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and did that come together... Oh, sorry. And was that quite... No, um, no, please. And did that come together quite... Easily, that that could, well, how were you approached for that particular inclusion onto the cassette? Well, I, th- I think um, I think we were approached. It might have been 1985 when they got in touch with us, not 86. And at that point, we were we were kind of breaking out from you know the, the northern circuit. We'd, we'd been reviewed a few times, um, and, and and the word was spreading. Um, I mean, we we did we had no idea what people thought about us, other than the times when you know fans came up to us or we got interviewed by fanzines and things like that. So it was it was a kind of a slow burn, and um, the I, I'd always loved the the first uh, NME cassette that came out, which is called C eighty one. I think. Did you, have you heard of that? Yeah, I got, yes. That was that was a lot different actually. It was it had no kind of connection to C eighty six at all, really, didn't it? Well, it, it it didn't, but it was a kind of a state of the nation sort of um, uh, compilation. And I, when 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 we heard they were doing another one, I, I was really excited about it because that first one I thought was great. It was some some brilliant tunes on it, everything from um, Orange Juice to Wah. Uh, James Blood Ulmer. It was a real, a real mix. So um, when got in, when the enemy got in touch with us, we were, we thought it was, yeah, it was a really good thing to do. Um, and when we thought about what songs we'd do, um, we, we, we didn't really have anything that we, we thought was appropriate for it because we, we didn't want to put something out that was just kind of the same as that we, we, we were doing. We wanted to to use it to experiment, really, because we it was it was free studio time. There were no pressures on us to do anything, um, so we just thought, you know, let, let's let's come up with a clean sheet of paper, and what what would we like to do in an ideal world? So um, 
the the basis of it really was that kind of layered um, kind of crescendo uh, approach that that I suppose Glenn Branca had, but making drums um, because at that point I think Jan Jan had got another drum, so we had three then, so it, we were quite impressed and. Um, and we, we, we all liked surf music, uh, in particular Wipeout by the Safaris. Yeah. So we, we, we thought about, we messed around about with ideas like that and also just tr- trying to play like a machine. Je- Jeff is a big fan of Donna Summer and, um, I, and I guess a couple of years in the future we'd have probably just programmed a, se- a sequencer in but we wanted to actually play like a sequencer, play like a machine and put put more emphasis on the playing, which you can't really do on a sequencer, and, and, and build a momentum, you know, something that, 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 that reaches a crescendo over whatever it was, I don't know, three, three and a half minutes. And Steve had written these lyrics that were, were, were pretty political, actually, in, 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 as, as he was wont to do. And um, I can't remember what the original title was. Uh, I, think, I just think it's called Wraparound. And um, we, we used to keep um, phrases pinned on, on, on a wall in our rehearsals, just th- things we liked. And, uh, and Jeff had written this, this phrase on called, from now on, this will be your God. And, uh, and it just felt right. And when we started messing about in the, in the cellar where we used to rehearse, um, it, it started coming together. And um, we, only, we only had literally... Uh, eight hours in the studio to do it, uh, and we recorded at a place called Vibra Sound in Sheffield. Ironic, um, we'd, we'd end up moving there, lock, stock, and barrel almost uh, in about a year's time, and um, and and just really going going crazy with it. You know, not thinking about you know red lights or anything like that. It was more about capturing the spirit. I think we probably did it in one or two takes, and um, in fact with with Steve got really excited and he had, he had some coins in his pocket and you can hear them jingling as he stomps his feet along to the, the music which is bizarre because it's, it's an absolute maelstrom that, that we created but we were, were really we had a, quite a clear idea what we wanted to do and it, it was completely uninfluenced by what anybody else was doing it was just very very particular to what we wanted to do at that time yeah, because obviously just around the corner, you know, because I was also, you know, though I was obsessed with indie pop, I was also, you know, there was other bands and things I liked, which was, you know, dear old Prince, who'd brought out, um, I think he brought out Parade and he'd done, he was about to bring out, I suppose, Sign of the Times, wasn't he, in sort of 87, mm. but you, you covered Kiss, which suddenly sort of propelled you into a whole nother kind of orbit, really, of, of recognition and sort of airplay. Yeah, well, it, we were um, we'd, we'd done our first Peel session, uh, which was was really successful. I think it got repeated about four or five times. And again, with that, we went in not wanting to do a standard, you know, one, two, three, four, off we go. And we used sort of um, um, sort of found found voices. That sounds a bit. A, a, a bit pricky, but we we, we had a, a Steve had a record which is about uh, from, from an American guy who specialised in sales techniques, 
and uh, and it was like a presentation that he'd given that he used to play all over the world. So we used excerpts from this because um, obviously a lot of our stuff we didn't write about love, which most bands seem to do. We 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 sort of wrote, wrote about consumerism um, and the relationship between you know people and things as much as people and people. So um, when we came to do the second Peel session. Um, we were actually short on a song, and um, we'd. We, I, I always liked the way the fall just nicked, nicked a, did the cover version. I mean, they did the the Huckle book at one point, I think. Mm. And and we, we we'd, we'd been out at the weekend dancing, and um, I think Kiss had just come out, and um, it was one of those things where the minute it starts, you loved it, or we did anyway. So um, we just said, "Oh yeah, we'd like to do, we'd like to do this," and and I I had a riff that was kind of from the the, the chorus from Bible of the Beats, and and Jeff just worked out the the sequence, the chord sequence for it in that particular key, um, not something we really looked at that much, but um, it came together really really quickly, uh, and it was the it, the combination of of the guitars. The chanting and the drums, and the drums were uh, really we, we kind of pinched them off LL Cool J. Oh, excellent! Who, uh, his, his first album had just come out, I think, or his first single, which was "I Just Can't Live Without My Radio," and and there was no no instruments in it at all, apart from drums and voice, and it was absolutely groundbreaking. So we we kind of took a part of that and used the the the, the drum really is it like a bridging riff into the chorus and uh when when we came to record it we, well the reason the second reason why we, we recorded it was we played a gig in nottingham at the garage and gone to a club afterwards and um the dj had recorded it off the radio off peel and was playing it and honestly the dance floor went mental and we just looked at each other and thought that's the next song we're going to do for the Peel session. And that's what we did. Excellent. So um, it, from, from there, the, the response that we got from it was, was just astronomical. And um, we started getting these offers in. Um, and we had this mad idea we wanted to do a 12-inch first because Cabaret Voltaire had done two 12-inches and we were wow. fans of them. Um, and we ended up going to Fawn in Sheffield because uh, uh, a friend of ours knew somebody there and they basically said we've got a 24 track studio you can come in on downtime you can have a you know as long as you want um we've got a design agency who you can talk to and because we had we had strong ideas for what the cover should be and um and went in and recorded kiss down and, and met designer republic who we've stayed friends with ever since really Excellent. And obviously this is a point where you were leaving Riot Bible, record label, to Virgin. So was that a kind of an interesting transition? Well, Riot Bible was our own label. We we put it together ourselves. It, it was basically operating out of Jeff's bedroom. Right. We didn't have any money. We just we, we got a production and distribution deal with Red Rhino in York, and they took 50% and we got the rest. Um, but at that point, after uh, Bible of the Beats, we, we we actually we didn't have a lot of money, um, and we we needed the next step. We knew we needed to um, 
do something, you know, remarkable in, in whatever way, shape or form that took. And we needed a bit more money behind it. And, and Red Rhino were quite conservative at the time. And um, and said, oh, well, you know, we won't pay. We, we can't afford to do a 12-inch. It'll have to be another seven. And um, we couldn't really give you any more money. So you'd, you'd sort of have to pay your studio time yourself. And and we didn't have it, frankly. So when Fon came along, um, it was like uh, a really good opportunity. So we did. We we ended up recording virtually our first album at Fon, um, which came out as like a mini album. I think it was six tracks. And I think if we'd have had a bit more presence of mind, we'd have recorded a couple more songs on it, maybe off the Peel, the other Peel session songs and put it out as our first album, but um, it, it, we, we didn't do it like that. Yeah. Um, and Fon, Fon were, were, were good up to a point, and, and the, the up to a point bit was when we realised that uh, the deal wasn't very good and they'd not been um, absolutely transparent with us. And instead of us getting 50% of everything, um, they'd already done a deal with Rough Trade, um, so we got much, much less than we thought we would. And then when Kiss came out as a single and started to, to really, really climb, because it, it sold an awful lot of records, they, the Rough Trade felt that they, they, they wanted us to kind of grow with them and, and kind of take over the, the Smith's mantle as, as their big seller. Um, but the problem with Rough Trade was they didn't have enough contacts in the press implants to meet the demand, and um, we were getting pressure to sign a, a big, a long-term deal that allegedly would would fund that, um, and we, we had to take a different route. Yes, and so Virgin Records, and how did that develop? <laughs> it, this is just it's one of those really weird things. We'd Kiss was selling. I don't know, 5,000 a week or something like that, which, you know, nowadays would be number one for about a month. But um, the Fon said that they need, they wanted, they wanted to do a video, but they didn't have any money. Um, but if we'd sign a publishing deal with them, they would give us the money to um, do a video, and that would help promote the record. Um, however, having talked to a few they all told me, you know, you always save your publishing deal to last because that's the only money that ever comes directly to you. So we were, we were really a real quandary. And um, we've been playing some gigs and we, we played a gig in Cardiff, I think it was. And uh, two guys came up to us in the sound check. And um, the two guys from a band called that Petrol Emotion, who'd been in the undertones, and uh, he said, oh, God, yeah, we really love what you're doing, and da, da, da. so we had a drink and things like that. How's it going? So he told him, he said, oh, God, don't worry about that. I said, look, we've got a manager. Why don't you give him a call? He's a really nice guy, you know, just for advice, and uh, I'm sure he could help. So the next day, literally, we phoned him up and went down to see him in London, showed him what we'd been asked to sign, and he said, right, go get a sandwich, come back later. Uh, we came back. And uh, he said, I've made a few calls. He said, have a look at this, this, pa- this piece of paper. And uh, there was 10 record companies on the pa- paper. And he said, every one of those record companies will sign you today if you want to sign with them. 
so why don't you pick three out and we'll go see him. Wow. And, and we, we were literally dumbstruck. I mean, we'd, we'd been working about three years, you know, putting our own records out, touring around, and we had no idea that people, what people thought about us or what, what record company thought about us. We never even asked or looked. And actually, we, people have been keeping tabs on us for all that time. And um, I think we went to see Phonogram because um, the mission were on Phonogram and I, I knew, knew Mick since we were all together. Um, I think the other one was RCA or something like that. And then the one after that was Virgin. Um, and we liked Virgin because they had a really good dance section, uh, dance label, and they just signed Cabaret Voltaire, who we knew from Sheffield, plus a couple of others, and they really, really wanted us. And um, and they they offered us a, a five year deal uh, for for a lot of money, and um, and literally we turned it round in about seven days. It was one of the weirdest times of our lives, I think. Um, and straight away things started to change. Oh, and did it turn out to be a good deal with Virgin? Well, I, th- I think when. Um, when when you, you you talk about record labels and and you, you consider where you want to go, um, I mean we'd we'd spoken to uh, this guy who ended up being our manager, um, and he said, well, you know, there's the there's the Indies as well, and I said, oh, what do you mean? He said, well, Factory wants to sign you, Four um, AD, um, uh, Mute, and um, and he said Def Jam in America. Yes. And as soon as he said Def Jam, we went, wow, because we were such massive hip-hop fans. Yes. But he said, the thing is, he said, you can sign with them. And he said, but, you know, this is how the deals will work. And he said, they won't support you, won't be able to support you in when you go on tour. Um, you'll have to do separate deals and negotiate separate deals in America. I, yeah, you could sign to Def Jam, for instance, but that would preclude... Um, you know, British deals as well. And he said that uh, Virgin had just set up Virgin America um, and they've got two really good guys in who just work with Prince. Who They, they were literally, they'd been Prince's, one of them had been Prince's manager. Uh, I think he's called Jeff Aeroff or something like that. And um, when when we sort of stepped back and looked at it, it, it yeah, factory, might have been interesting. I actually, I knew one of the lads in certain ratio, and he said they never got any money out of them. <laughs> um, and if you read New Order books or Peter Hook, you know they were getting a hundred, well, less than a hundred quid a week, and they were New Order selling millions of records. You know, so um, whilst he might look on the face of it, yeah, you could you, you could go with an indie, and I, I love new records for it, etc. Um, do what we wanted to do, and we were quite ambitious in in terms of getting, you know, improving our sound. Um, it, it, it felt the best decision to to make, and um, and you know, and when you go to a, a major, and when they pay you a lot of money, you know, you've got to up your game mm-hmm. in pretty much every respect. Um, and I, you know, I think we we did, we, we worked as hard as we could to put the, the best music out we could um, and get as much out of it as we could. Um, so, I, you know, when when I look back now, I, I don't I don't really look back with 
anything other than you know really really proud of the the, the music that we made. Yes, and and um, and it, much of it I think stands the test of time. Um, Virgin, you know, opened a lot of doors for us, lots of opportunities, um, and uh, and ultimately, you know, it's whether or not lots and lots and lots of people like your records. Um, and we were always an underground band on an overground record label. Um, and, and, and as somebody like Sonic Youth, or even REM, when they signed their big deals, they'd probably tell you, you know, it's, it's difficult to translate it. Um, and I think the, 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 the album that we did on Virgin was the first one, 1,000 Years of Trouble. Um, oh, it's still a great album. You know, I, I, I played it the other day, and it still sounds fresh. Yeah. Um, and there's not many records I made 20, 30 years ago that you could say that about. <laughs> but we we were, you know, we were the kind of band who took risks um, and took chances. We we didn't we never took the easy option. Um, you know, there were lots lots of bands coming out at that time were playing, uh, make, making good records and, and and easy to like music, and we were never kind of like that really. Um, so I'm, I'm sure if we'd have been less forthright and in your face, who knows, we might have had a longer career, but, um, you know, the, the uh, what's the phrase? The, the, the light that burns twice as bright lasts half as long or something like that. And I think that's, that's the kind of our approach to it. And obviously, yes, because 1,000 Years of Trouble came out in 87, and that was, that was roughly the band had been going for five years. And from doing all these interviews, the one thing I've noticed that five years is often the point where things start to crumble, you know. But you, you sort of were a bit slower off the mark because normally people seem to get the single and a bit of an album out a bit earlier. Then it was often the second record and a tour after a tour. And if anybody ever does America, that seems to break them. So... Um, that seems to be the kiss of death. Whereas you'd sort of got the, to 87 with your first album on Virgin. And then and then how did it progress from there? Because obviously you changed record labels after that. Well, we, we, uh, we, were, we were on Virgin until 92. So um, we'd, we'd put this first album out and then we started the first album on Virgin like I say I, I kind of think the our first album really was the uh, Chris Collision that came out on Fon and then um, and then we signed to Virgin so um, 1000 Years of Trouble so technically is our second album yes um, I think we, we we started writing the third one and um, it was I, I think at that point, you know, we've been we've been long tours, um, and it, it, you know, you, you start writing from a, a different standpoint once you've you've gone through the songs that you spent, you know, two or three or four years putting together, and then starting writing from fresh. Um, and I think it's, it's always with a different perspective. So with those, we started writing the technically the third album, which is Mecca, and. Um, to sort of finished it, and it wasn't really what we were hoping for. And I can't, I can't put my finger why. But Steve um, didn't didn't like the the direction we were going in, and um, and decided that was it, and he didn't want to go go that way. So we, yeah, I've you know, known him for, for years. 
we had to accept that decision and then think about well what, which way we were going to go after that. So we 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 virtually finished an album, and then we started looking for a new singer, which is quite unusual. And um, and after many many uh, auditions, uh, found a guy who I'd seen in a band in Leeds, who had a brilliant voice, um, and we decided to, to 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 go with him, and um, and he was a great great singer, but. Um, uh, lacked the professional application that uh, I think we had, so um, it was even after it came out, it was a bit difficult with him. Um, and I think as New Order will tell you, you know, you, if you change singers, it's always uh, tricky. And maybe we should promote it from within. I don't know, but I think we made we we still we had some great songs. I mean, there were, there were Steve's lyrics, and um, I think they were a bit more kind of influenced by the way underground music was happening at that time. And when I say underground music, I kind of mean underground dance music, which was kind of deep house. Um, and it was much more of an American influence then because, you know, that's the kind of stuff we've been listening to and less of, you know, the, the sort of the Sonic Youth, New York vibe. Um, so that's, that's kind of how things changed. And... Um, and we, we kind of went with that until I think it was about 92 when we'd, um, we the, the option was up. Um, and then we, we, we started putting our own records out again. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the, 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 the kind of the direction of travel for that. Yeah. Cause, cause the other thing that <clears throat> I'd sort of realized that happened with a lot of those indie bands was that kind of towards the late eighties, like the dance scene was starting to sort of explode and bands like um, Happy Mondays had obviously done quite well because yeah. they, they had sort of been quite sort of just an indie-based band and then they sort of got that dance vibe and then the Stone Roses and then that whole sort of like, I suppose, you know, th that dance scene took over from sort of like the Smiths who broke up in 87. So obviously you would have mm. been perfect for that kind of crossover really. Well, yeah, I think uh, ironically, when we were we were we were over in Stockport doing the uh, overdubs with with uh, with Charlie, because the Strawberry had a forty-eight track studio, so we'd we'd go over there every day, and we'd go through the tracks and do and do the vocals on them, and in between us going there, the Mondays were nipping in all the uh, Stone Roses, so we kind of we you know we we. We, we knew all that about them pr pretty quickly. I mean, I'd I'd seen the Happy Mondays um, play the Leeds Warehouse, I think, in 85, I think it was, or something like that. And they were, they were pretty dreadful, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, I could you imagine. Know, I, there's, a, there's probably 100 bands better than them in Wakefield, let alone Leeds, but they, they're just being on factory. So, sometimes things fall into place. I think it did for them, and they made some great records. Um, but I, I guess we were we were ahead of the curve, and and sometimes that's not always the best way to be. Uh, you know, Trailblazers is great in in theory. Um, in practice, you know, you you, you pave the way for people um, to, to come along after you and 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 and, and do uh, records. And you know, a lot of bands were influenced by what we did. Um, and the way that we did it, 
uh, Populate Yourself, bands like that, um, and, and and quite a lot of others. But you know, we, he, my my view is we we tried to do the make the best music we could. We tried to be innovative, creative, what what in whatever we did, um, and it, it was you know we we try we weren't trying to fight follow a formula to become millionaires we just wanted to put great records out and at the heart of it that's i think that's what we did well obviously <laughs> some of the people to judge whether they're great or not but we i i i think they're very exciting yes um and along the way you know we did things like we were the first band to work with public enemy um they did uh, one of our remixes um i met chuck d um <clears throat> at rock city i think in nottingham you know, and they, those guys thought our stuff was awesome, and, and that, that was a big deal for us. You know, that having bands who we really liked, um, who said, "Actually, yeah, yeah, we, we listen to your stuff." It was it was a great feeling. Yeah, uh, and obviously, you know, fan, fans as, as well, and record companies. Um, and looking back, you know, Kiss. I, I think somebody told me Kiss sold a hundred, hundred and ten, hundred and twenty thousand records, which is just second after Blue Monday, I think, for 12 inches. So it, it, it did pretty, pretty flipping well. Yeah, because one thing that, you know, obviously quite a few of us were a bit obsessed with John Peel and in the sort of like, you know, recording his show and listen to it because it'd often take a bit of play to sort of get used to sort of, you know, I don't know, 90 minutes or 45 minutes, depending if you record it on a tape, you know, because it was all new material. And the, I think one thing about John Peel was that he introduced, introduced me to a lot of stuff. And obviously, when you were talking about that early hip hop stuff, you know, I can, I did go out and buy the LL Cool J seven inch of Rock the Bell and I Can't Live Without um, <laughs> Radio, you know, that little 12 inch, um, seven inch single, which was just brilliant. And Yo Bum Rush the Show, which was the Public Enemy yeah. album as well, which was just fantastic. And then it was a lot of female rappers like uh, Roxy Chante or. Um, yeah, yeah, sweet tea, and all those people who I was just like, you know, and I, I even, I think it was '86. There was this kind of festival of hip hop in in Wembley Arena. I think it was um, put on by that guy who used to do those compilations, street sounds, or something. Oh like. yeah, yeah, uh, Khan. That's the man, Mr. Khan. Yeah, yeah. And I went down to that, you know, and and sort of saw those bands like Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five and African <laughs> Bambata. So you know, apart from you know, I did like all those other bands like the Shop Assistants and. Half Man, Half Biscuit, and obviously the Smiths. But, they, <laughs> yeah. but there was that other sort of side that John Peel sort of opened the door, which was completely new. And I know that most of his colleagues absolutely hated and thought this was the worst music in the world. But, <laughs> but I found it kind of, I found it a kind of fascinating kind of detour, really. You know, the same with, you know, the reggae stuff that was coming out, like Dennis Bryan and Gregory Isaacs and the, you know, Michael Rose, as well as, you know, like mm. the African stuff, like uh, the Four Brothers and the Bundu Boys and Thomas McFumo. Mm. So, so in a way, when, you know, Age of Chance was kind of doing, you know, the C I can remember him playing that single from the C86 cassette quite a lot, you know, from now on, This Will Be Your God, because it was just such did, a sort of punchy did, yeah. title. And then obviously Kiss came along and, you know, and I was a massive Prince fan. You know, I went to see him loads of times in the sort of probably the, the more the early 90s. And, and wow. And it was fantastic. And obviously, 87 was a year that had, you know, like Sign of the Times come out. So you sort of did sort of, you were there when it was all kind of exploding. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it, it's it's funny when you uh, when you got in touch with me and I, I kind of had I, I to listen to your, uh, your, your show. 
and um, and it, it kind of made, made me think about, you know, well, what 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 did we do? What did we achieve? You know, what was our position? Um, and and you know, not we we, we get name checked every so often. Um, uh, James Dean Bradfield got interviewed on uh, BBC last year, and uh, out of the blue, picked up Motor City, and said. Edge of Chance, what an amazing band, big influence, and, and it, it's it's great when you see that. Uh, and, but what I think about us is, for 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 a while, we defined what the sound of of the uh, of the music was, um, and and what the period was, um, and whilst you know you might say, well, is that it? You know, did not extend beyond that. I'm I'm not sure. You know what more you could ask of the music than to to actually say, you know, that song was everything for that period, or that 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 band, you know, for that for for a moment, you know, a moment in a period, actually pulled all that together um, and 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 put it out there. And it actually, I mean, it sounds a little bit pompous. I'm sorry, but it, it feels it feels that that's what we kind of did. Um, and I think that's probably why I'm, I'm, I'm proud of what we did. Um, Peel was a massive uh, supporter of, of us, and we certainly wouldn't have had a career without him. Um, and we told him that every time we saw him. Um, and I think you know you got to give him credit for for getting other bands out there by playing his mu- different kinds of music. Um, I think in particular what, what, when you look back on the Peel. Uh, program it's, it's obvious now what he did which was he'd segment his program so you'd have, you'd have a, a reggae record yeah. a hip-hop record a funk record a rockabilly record you'd have your sessions and you might have some old rock or something like that yes and but at the time you were listening to it and it's like bloody hell that came out of nowhere you know um eka mouse <laughs> followed right. by you know utfo followed um, Einstein and Neubarten or something like that and I think that's what made it such an exciting show um, which made it all the more exciting when you were part of it which you know, we were lucky to be Yeah, absolutely I mean, you know, you're right he'd always play one of those songs like um, Dwayne Eddy and then he'd followed by a Chicago House you know, that's where I heard all that Chicago House sound you know, was to John Peel show, Yeah, which, yeah Because most people who didn't listen to John Peel thought it was just all indie pop and it's like, no, this is <laughs> you know, I, I mean, some of the soul records I got from that 50s and 60s period which are quite on the Kent record label it's like, well, actually, I heard it on John Peel, bizarrely and I went out and bought it because, you know, he liked the people like Irma Thomas and I thought, oh, yeah, that's great And then, but then he yeah. would then he would play yeah, something like Liebach, and I think, oh yeah, Liebach, I quite like them as well, you know. And then it was like, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, he was just all over the place. But again, you know, all that, most of that dance music that I picked up on, you know, because I wasn't going to clubs or stuff, but I quite, you know, I sort of went and bought those NME mm. uh, collections as well. And there was the other ones on, was mm. it FFRR Records, London Records, which yeah. came out on, you know, that whole because it was a new thing. Chicago House was quite a new sound, mm. and I can't remember. Something like oh Jack Master no um Farley Farley Jack Master Funk that's the one love, love can't turn around love can't see the first time I heard John Peel play that I was just like stop the cassette rewind play it again you know it was a <laughs> bit like it was just like God what the hell was that you know and you know again yeah, I've got the yeah. seven inch single because I managed to track it down but you know it was like 
no, that was the John Peel show that introduced me to Love Can't Turn Around. And it was just like, wow. And then there would be a reggae song from, you know, like Dennis Brown or somebody. And you think, wow. Mm. You know, mm. so it was, you know, it was quite amazing, really. And yeah, you know, mm. any, anything that got on his show was was kind of curious and interesting. So you're right. You know, he yeah, did open the doors, which was fantastic. But um, just, yeah. you know, just one vaguely last question. What would you, you know, after all your experience, and obviously the band did last for well over, well, 10 years, didn't it? I mean, what, mm. what, what, what would you say to your, you know, what would you say to an 18-year-old self starting out in music? Um, I, I think if you've, if you've got an idea of, of how you want to sound... Um, stick to it. I think if no matter what happens, if you if you've got a clear idea of you know what what you want to pull together to make uh, a unique tune or an, a, you know a format of a sound, I, I think you, you know you've got to nurture it, stick with it, build on it. Um, and, and, and turn it into something unique. Um, try try not to follow what other people are doing, but keep keep your own path. Um, keep your own create create sense of creativity and, and your individuality. Um, I mean, I, I this morning I was listening to uh, by chance on Spotify some old Northern Soul songs, and I'd forgotten how much Northern we used to listen to. And, um, and it was so inspirational in that they, they sounded quite raw, but they also sounded otherworldly. Um, and it was that kind of mix that we always wanted to capture. Um, you know, we, we called um, our, our compilation EP Twilight World of Sonic Disco. And, um, and I, I'd, I'd written like a piece to go with it, kind of describing what, what we thought our world was and what our music should be. And, um, and we, we liked putting things like that on our records. So m- most of our records had a little piece, bios, um, giving context for what we did um, and, and, and kind of placing it and, and describing what, what we were trying to do uh, and, and what we were for. And I think if you can do that, if you're 18 now and you've got an idea and it might, I don't know, it might be to mix, you know, reggae with dance hall, with rock and roll, um, with go-go or, or some other obscure um, old, old musical style, you, you go for it because so, there's so much similarity in, in music at the moment because it's far more writing teams around than individuals and individual bands. I think there's, there's a lot of um, homogenised sound and, and, and when you hear somebody who's not homogenised, like, I don't know, um, Royal Blood, for instance, or something like that, they, they really stick out. Yeah. And I think they've got a really good sense of who they are. Um, and, yeah, Glastonbury, when they play Glastonbury, I was just on the floor... I was filming filming it on TV and and putting it on Facebook because it's just so exciting, and you just saw them enjoying themselves. Just them two, you know, there's eighty thousand people, but they were playing it between them and enjoying what they did, 
and that really is the best you can get at when you're in a band. Yeah. You know, two, three, four people in a room playing the arse of the song, locking in, getting the groove, hitting your marks, getting the song, getting the, the sound right. There's nothing like it. It's 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 it can be a real transcendental moment, yes. and that for me is why 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 you should if you want to be in the spit. Oh, you just broke up there, but are you still there? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, because you mentioned Spotify, because your stuff isn't on Spotify, is it? The age of... Well, somebody, somebody told me it is. Oh. Um, I've, I've not looked for it. I mean, um, we, we, I, I was having an argument with an old friend of mine about it, because obviously you go on Spotify, you don't get any money. Um, and then we started arguing about the value of music these days and why in 20 years... The, the value of a, of a song has gone down when everything else has gone up. Yes. Um, you know, when, when, you know, we used to get, I think it was 275 for a 12-inch, or maybe 375 back in the 80s for three songs, and it's, you know, what, 99 pence a track or something off iTunes. So I, I think it is out there. I mean, um, about, uh, where are we, about eight years ago, uh, Virgin EMI re-released all our stuff on uh, onto iTunes, Amazon, and I can't remember what the streaming service was. And um, it's all there, pretty much everything, I think. Yeah. Um, well, they've got on Spotify at the moment. They've got Mecca, but they don't have One Thousand Years of Trouble. And then they've got lots of your kind of singles, like Don't Get Mad, Get Even, and stuff like that, and remixes, but. Yeah, there's this kind right. of there's kind of gaps, but then as you say, there's probably no kind of incentive because you don't get much that um, is going to be worth worrying about, really, is it? No, but I mean, if you go on YouTube, all that I think every track's on there. Yes, this is true. And you don't have to pay for it if you don't want to. Um, and do you? And okay, yeah, do you? I'm, okay? I'm, I'm not. I've not gone out and bought a Porsche waiting for the uh, the money coming in from Spotify or no. iTunes. <laughs> do you get? But, to... uh, no, the main it's 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 there if you want to listen to it. Um, yes. and I think uh, yeah, it is what it is. I think that things change, and you have to embrace it. So, yes. I'm 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 okay with Spotify. And that is the last part or that end of the conversation interview with Neil Harrison. A huge thanks for giving me all the, the time for that interview. Much appreciated. This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 show, as I said at the beginning. And now I am probably signing desk, but you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there. Keep it positive. I like it. Otherwise, I don't. And um, all the shows have been archived and podcast. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud. Anyway, thank you if you are listening still. Otherwise, whatever. Um, I'm going to leave you with that classic track that was on the NME C86 show. This is from now on. This will be your God. Take it away.